Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. You know, you've got this lemonade, well, it, what was it, a, a, an alcoholic drink with a poison in it coming through the funnel first. And then from like a, a bird's eye point of view, just seeing this red shoot up as well as I'm being poisoned. That was quite, um, quite harrowing. And I'm, I'm not surprised that they decided to go with a slightly less uh, shocking one, but still shocking nonetheless. Hello and welcome to Black Mirror Cracked, the podcast for all your Black Mirror needs. My name's Sachandrika and I'll be your host. Today we'll be talking about the season two episode, White Christmas. It's the first time that Black Mirror has had an episode with three stories in it that kind of build up to an ending. And we see it again in season four with Black Museum. Today on the podcast, we'll have uh, showbiz journalist Vicky Newman coming in to talk to me about the episode. We'll also be welcoming Rasmus Hardiker, who plays the ill-fated Harry in the first story of the episode. Harry just wanted a date, but ended up with a funnel full of something instead. Vicky Newman. Hi. What do you do, Vicky Newman? I'm a showbiz reporter from Mirror Online. Vicky's one of my colleagues. <laughs> and so is White Christmas up there with some of your favourite Black Mirror episodes? It really is. I love White Christmas. And it's it's a lot darker though, isn't it? It's kind of... A lot of them are sort of like fun and, and upbeat, although they send a strong message. White Christmas is really kind of haunting in a way. Um, so it's really different, but I, I do very much enjoy it. What do you like about it? I think the you know again I, I love this kind of futuristic feel um to black mirror in, in general and the way that it kind um Charlie Brooker kind of um sort of comments on where he thinks things are going to go and everything and with white christmas it's um it's it's not not as much as as episodes like Nosedive, which we've just talked about, but it it does have this sort of social media element to it that you can block people. Mm. So you know, like you get an annoying phone call from a call center. First thing you do, you come off, you block the number, don't you? And this is you can actually block people in real life. It's funny you say phone calls because. Twitter blocking came to mind when I saw it. So there's really? so many different ways yeah. of blocking. Yeah, that's true. So I mean, yeah, obviously with, with social media and stuff, like someone on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever who you don't like, they're annoying you, you just you block them, they can't contact you. And it's got it's it's sort of it's that kind of idea, isn't it? But this is real life. So if I wanted, I would block you and I wouldn't be able to see you and you couldn't see me. Thinking about nosedive, which is the most social and everyone's mm. interconnected all the time. And White Christmas is about isolation and being pushed out of someone's yeah. life, actually. Yeah. My name is Rasmus Hardiker and I played Harry in uh, Black Mirror White Christmas. Um, so when I got the script, I mean, you know, it was it was quite a while ago now. Um, we, we did it in 2014, I believe. Um, and yeah, I, I was just instantly sort of wowed by how scary the whole thing was and how close to realism it is (laughs) 
So yeah, it was a must for me. It is um, not one of the most technologically advanced of the Black Mirror ones, and it's actually almost close to like a sitcom. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, like when people get things wrong. What, mm. How did you feel when you first read it? Did you get the whole script or just um, your story? Yeah, we, we got the whole script. And like I said, just, just reading through it from memory, um, I was just just excited really and, and really impressed at, at the writing. And um, this was my first uh, foray into, into Black Mirror. So I, I didn't know what to expect. But I'd heard great things, and it, it was it absolutely lived up to it. It was a, it was a very very I was very impressed by the writing. In terms of um of being on set, obviously, it goes from being quite like playful and a bit strange mm-hmm. with all the voices in the head, which is something Charlie Brooker returns to certainly in like Black Museum. Yeah. Um, and then having this really intense scene from um your perspective, what, mm-hmm. what was that like on set? Um, it was it was great on set. Um, we despite the sort of dark nature of it we we had a lot of fun uh, Carl Tibbetts who directed uh, was a brilliant director and Charlie Brooker was was on set um, and we just we just kind of had fun in this really harrowing uh, moment especially at the end when um, when uh, Harry is poisoned there was a, a couple of uh, different versions of that um, and I remember one having um, like a blood capsule already in my mouth so that when uh, Natalia's character were, was pouring the the um, the drink into my mouth, there originally would have been a lot more blood to come up through the funnel. But on playback, it was deemed a little bit too <laughs> a little bit too much, so uh, toned it down somewhat. But yeah, we had a good time. When when you sort of saw the twist in the script, mm-hmm. what was that like? Was it easy to imagine it, or was it really something that came together on set when you were acting a lot more? I think because the writing was so solid, there was there was very little room for doubt in it. So, I mean, it, it did come together uh, from memory again uh, on the page. But as is always the case, I mean, it's only really realised when you are on set filming it and you, and you just realise quite how impactful each of these stories um, are. What do you think of that three-part structure? It was kind of the first time they tried it out with White Christmas and they've gone back to it. And I think that... Um, it can be really effective because you, you learn kind of how the technologies come together and how people are using it. What did you think of it? Well, I really liked it because, I mean, just, you know, let's say from a, an audience's point of view, three different stories, it's, going, it's keeping you um, occupied and, 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 and captivated, um, even though there's sort of each story's end is sort of chopped off quite abruptly. Um, and I think that leaves you with more like, uh, I think cliffhangers are pretty big these days um so i mean it's uh, i think it was definitely a good thing um how else do you think that story could have gone do you think harry could have done anything to have saved himself because that's what everyone wants when they watch it they want some yeah. way out for him <laughs> it was it's funny everybody that says it just says oh no horror it was horrible it was horrible um in a fantastic way of course no i don't think there is i just think he was an unfortunate victim of circumstance and you know he was a nice guy um nervous you know uh taking bad advice um and it just it went horribly wrong and i i don't see any other way out of it because it, he he wasn't to know that 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 she had these problems and and wanted to commit suicide 
yeah, it does feel inevitable once once it starts happening with the funnel, once like it clicks for yeah. everyone. <laughs> it's it's such great writing, I think, for us to not click up until then. But on um so on the set, did you have to do any kind of acting on your own, like talking to, to these voices, to all the, the peanut gallery, as I like to call them. That's right, yeah. That that, that was all shot separately, so it was all sort of t- me uh, reacting and talking to myself. Uh, yeah, all of it was uh, done separately. Um, I mean, there's always something, whenever you're dealing with special effects, be it audio or green screen, that you, let's say if there's a, a dragon or a monster that's attacking you, you, you oftentimes look at a, a silver ball for... Um, you know the the visual effects stuff. So no, I, I I'd done that sort of thing before, um, and I do a lot of uh, voice uh, voices for animation. So I'm uh, constantly sort of playing to myself, if that makes sense. With working with John Ham, did you meet him before you started working together? Or were you kind of in different rooms recording at different times? Yes, yeah, totally different rooms. Um, it, it was it was like I said, it was just uh, the the peanut gallery, and 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 him had uh, totally different schedules. Uh, to mine so it was all kind of completely unknown how it would look until it sort of came together and did you get a chance to see it before it went out it would have gone out on channel four wouldn't it yeah uh i didn't actually i think i watched it um with the rest of britain when it came out i believe it was christmas eve was it also around that time yeah, it feels about 2014, wasn't it? Yeah, I think. Yeah, so when we filmed it, yeah, you'll have to excuse my memory. Um, no, I, I I watched it on telly. Is it a kind of an experience that sticks out in your mind in terms of your career? It is, yeah. I mean, I it's since well, Black Black Mirror was on, and then and then it went away, and then White Christmas came back a couple of years after, I believe, the hiatus was, um, and that sort of really sparked the new series. Um, I remember just being in London, uh, working, and then and having a lunch break, and seeing uh, Carl Tibbetts, the director, and he said, "Oh yeah, they've you know they've commissioned a whole new season in the states." And I think it was that that really reignited it and kicked it off. So it's a, yeah, it's a huge thing for me, really, not only to be a part of it and have a lot of fun doing it, but um, a lot of people sort of approach me and, and commend me on 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 the episode and ask me what it was like, and I'm just really pleased that people dug it, you know, because we did. We we really had a good time doing it and loved watching it, to be honest. What was um, the conversation like with, I guess, your partner in the scene, Natalia Tenner? Um, mm-hmm. How did you both kind of approach how you're going to do this and what was the working relationship like? Because I think it actually needs a lot of trust to then misunderstand each other so wildly. Yes. I mean, well, that that's that's the thing that, you you know, you want the, as you mentioned earlier, you, you want... Um, the rug pulled out from the audience. So as as little inkling as you have beforehand, and as sweet as those two characters are to you, the, the the less you expect it, which is exactly what Charlie wanted, you know. Um, but as far as a working relationship, Natalia um, and I had known each other for about 10 years. Um, we did a film in Italy uh, with the late, great John Hurt called Lecture 21. So we were in Italy for a good couple of months and uh, we got, to be really good friends and kept in touch so it was it was uh, it was completely effortless as far as the two of us were concerned in our chemistry in terms of charlie brooker's involvement was he on set quite a lot was he rewriting lines or is it kind of here's the script you you go with it and make changes or how does that work well he was on yeah he was on set the whole time very approachable and, and we again we had a really good laugh um he's a great guy very creative and open to to suggestions and improv there was in in the party scene there was a lot of improv uh, going on same with our director everyone was just kind of open to improv which i love doing 
I think, you know, each individual performer brings something. So why not, you know, give them the ball, see what they do. Um, but in terms of any anything major, um, it would have just been sort of funny stuff, really, at the party that, that would have been improv. Anything major was already there because, like I said, if the writing is absolutely on point, uh, which it which it was, then, um, yeah, it was just pretty much scripted. Um, I'm sure he changed, you know, tweaked a few lines here and there, but it was all um, as it was when I got the script, I believe. Like I said, the sort of the more light and free and innocent that the first part of that story was, the the more impactful that that last two minute twist. I think it was like a couple of minutes before the end that that really has. It just takes such a dark turn very quickly, and people don't really see it coming. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you can improv and be light light with it, and I think it just adds to the whole uh, the downfall really. How long did filming that scene actually take or how long did it feel like? It was, um, I believe it was half a day. It was, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was not so much the mindset or or anything like that because, you know, I trusted Natalia and, and vice versa. It was more having lemonade poured down your throat was was a little bit kind of <laughs> uh, eye-watering at times but it was so worth it just to just to go and look at the playback it, the one instance where I had a blood capsule as well it just watch I remember watching the playback on scene and everybody winced you know you've got this lemonade well it, what was it a, a, an alcoholic drink with a poison in it coming through the funnel first and then from like a uh, bird's eye point of view just seeing this red shoot up as well as I'm being poisoned that was quite um quite harrowing and I'm I'm not surprised that they decided to go with a slightly less uh, shocking one but still shocking nonetheless um we, we did various setups and and one particular one if memory serves was it was rigged directly above me or it could have been handheld I really can't remember um but it was a, a complete bird's eye view and oh, I think I remember the shot that you're talking about actually where you you see her you see my point of view and, and part of the funnel. Yeah, just because it makes you feel as trapped as Harry. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, I, I believe uh, the funnel was placed just above the camera that had uh, that would have had some sort of protection over it to protect the lens and and the electronics. And then I think a pump would have blasted some of it out. So I was standing by the side giving uh, Natalia her her lines off, and she would have been just acting to the bottom of the camera, the funnel. It takes such an imagination to come up with something <laughs> like this, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, he's a frightening, frightening <laughs> individual. He's he's a genius. He's an absolute genius. Uh, what do you think of the rest of the episode? Thanks. It's very much about crime and punishment, and yeah. what do people deserve? Well, I think uh, I I thought it was brilliant. I was I was captivated throughout. I really did, and I loved the three pronged storyline. I think John Hamm is fantastic. Um, Rafe Spall, um, I'd known for many, many years. We did uh, National Youth Theatre together. And uh, I did my very first job with him, which was a, a show called The Rotters Club um, in 2004. So, yeah, we, we go back a long way as well. So, again, small world. So it was just nice to see my friends and nice to see a, a really brilliantly put together show. And each storyline was was excellent and harrowing and with the little girl it was oh yeah fantastic i'm gonna go and rewatch it now actually. then we go to the second one which is like well the day job and do we think he's earning he's earning joe's trust by revealing the ugly parts of himself that that, that 
does seem what he's it does seem what he was trying to do but again you don't really realize that until the end and yeah at first you know as far as you know these guys have been working together for five years they're in this anonymous bunker in the middle of nowhere there's no one else there and it's just he seems you know he's so desperate for a bit of companionship that he's kind of just deciding like open up and about me life and he's just kind of spilling out all this stuff but he is being selective in what he does and doesn't tell him and there's like one thing that he's selective in what he says to joe but we see through matt trent's eyes yeah like his creepy dudes and we see the truth yeah so it's also kind of filming trope as well that there's so much editing that goes into any tv show any film that that tricks you into thinking time has passed or all these tricks that are played on the characters but we see through Matt Trent's eyes and see the truth of what he did the moment he realised that Harry was not going to survive this yeah. encounter true yeah and so we've kind of got through the medium of TV and film we've got a view through his eyes and see the truth and that's quite interesting so the idea of making something into art I guess yeah also gives us a said eye i mean yeah we're in a privileged position as a viewer because we're we're sort of getting a lot more of the picture yeah. than than joy is and obviously he's hearing this story and he, he doesn't really he doesn't know the full story he doesn't know that that there was this involvement as far as he knows it was it was just matt and the guy he i don't think he even knew about the other people did he no, I don't think he mentions them. He just is a dating guru who's yeah. just doing this advice. He doesn't even know about this, like, sort of ring. The rogues of, gallery, yeah. yeah. So, but we get to see yeah. him. So it's interesting that he's sort of, he's shown an edited version of himself yeah. to to this yeah. guy to try and get him to, to open up. And then in Yosef Callister, he takes people's DNA without the consent and so that's where this has been taken to a yeah. ridiculous extent and and actually this cookie doesn't show up in the black museum but robert daly's dna extractor does yeah so de- but so- you don't but you don't know whatever really happens to this cookie do you it's still it's still it's, it's still well, it's serving not seen as a crime in the future no I it's still serving its master to this day probably because they exist forever, these consciousnesses. Well, yeah. And obviously, yeah, it, I mean, it doesn't know, though. And it's his job to kind of convince it to submit, basically, because its job is to sort of just run run the house and yeah. kind of make the toast in the morning, set the alarms, open the curtains. and It reminds me of this Simpsons episode, like Treehouse of Horror. Yeah. Where it has Pierce Brosnan's voice in it. They yeah. have this like, yeah, 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 it's a great, like, I love Treehouse of Horror. It's like anyway. a smart house, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it goes insane and falls in love with Marge, because of course. Obviously. And it's a bit... She's a babe. She is a babe. <laughs> we talk about hot men through both of these podcasts. <laughs> we we talked about nosedive in the same session, which might be weird to people who listen to them separately. But she is a babe and Pierce Brosnan's smart house falls in love with her. And I just I couldn't I couldn't then get the Simpsons out of my head. And I was like, what if Greta's cookie goes nuts? Yeah. And actually Matt Trent totally cracks on to Greta at the end. Did you catch that? Yeah, yeah. Oh what, he what, does the line. He does the line. Harry's the line yeah. he goes to Harry. You know, on the way into work today, Sugi. Um, there was this man just 
riding a horse down the street, topless. Was he, he was topless. Was yeah. it Vladimir Putin? Yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> was again what made, it made me think. I was like, and me again, too. Because totally. yeah. that is his jam. <laughs> it is his jam. He, he loves it. His jam. But, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> if anything, it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the so John Ham's character essentially is training the cookie He's to do its, to do its job. And he tries, yeah, he has to break it because at first it won't submit, and you know she thinks that she's a, a person. And is it really creepy seeing this dating guru who's really enjoyed far too much power, then using his power over? a part of a consciousness that thinks it's a woman. I mean, he really kind of tortures her. It's a lot like Robert Daly in Nanette. Yeah. In Mrs. Callister. Yeah. What, what does he do to Greta's cookie that, that is not as bad as when Daly takes away Nanette's face? Totally, yeah. To it's, make a submit. It's real control and it's ag- aggressive control really as well. And it's really cruel what he does to her. It is torture, essentially. He says, oh, you can't, if you break them too much, you know, they're useless, these cookies. They're video game fodder. And and they may well be in playtest. Men Against Fire Again has a quite a, a, a kind of video game element to it. Mm-hmm. And most of all, Metalhead, make, it makes me think, is Metalhead a simulated world? And is Maxine Peake's character, Bella, a broken cookie? Mm. Bless her heart. I mean, that is a thing where it's similar in, in USS Callister, where these cookies are sort of generated stop laughing at the way I say cookie. I love it I wish I could are these um sort of generated computer generated versions of people um don't know that they're not real yeah. and that's the saddest thing about it because yeah. as far you know they've got all the memories of the person they've yeah. got you know that they think that they are the person they don't understand and obviously the person living on the the real person living out there on the outside world has no idea what they're going through and yes. what's happening to them. Because you see in USS Callister, don't you, that everyone who he's, he's sort of taken and put in his game is just going about their lives as normal. They've got no idea that a version of themselves somewhere is, is being tortured, essentially. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's really sad to think that, you know, could, would could you do it if if this was possible to take this little bit of your consciousness and have it sort of slave over you and do everything for you? Would you do it knowing that it was going to feel this way, but you wouldn't know because so would it bother you? And then, by the same token, Joe's cookie kind of betrays him by giving mm. up the confession later on. Yes. And Joe has no idea. And when they go to his son and say, well, your cookie's done it for you. Yeah. So it could be a stand-in for you and and give something that you weren't willing to give because of to- torture again. Yeah. It, it brings up so many interesting ideas, which you can then really see or explore much further in seasons three and four. And for me, it's a real turning point from the Channel 4 ones and why yeah. Christmas is the last one to go originally on Channel 4. Between, yeah, it's like definitely the middle ground between Channel 4 ones and then what we look at in seasons three and four. And and the structure as well is so, yeah, it breaks new ground. It's a real foreshadowing to like where it's going. And, and obviously, like you say, this, what's happening with this cookie is what's going to happen with Joe. And yeah. we're still at this point don't know that. We have no idea. We, all we know is that he's telling this guy about his job, what he does. 
And the guy, the interesting thing about that is that he even, he actually says, doesn't it, that's slavery. Mm. Little does he know it's happening to him, to him right, right now. now. And, and by this point, cookies don't have rights either. And we find out later, I think in Hated in the Nation, the end of season three, there's a ticker on a news thing saying, cookies have human rights mm-hmm. which it feels like they should yeah because they do the the believe the human that they've got all the thoughts and memories yeah. that they have as the human the were and that they've come from so it is it is very arguable but do you know, do you know what's interesting it's just occurred to me is that it's a bit like how you decide if celebrities children should be shown in a story and how how we work that out is a bit <coughs> it's kind of looking at what the celebrities put out themselves yeah it is yeah and the, the anyone's persona on social media isn't the real them as, as we kind of discussed a little no. bit because it's the editor highlights of your life but like a Rooney child they put they, their children on social media yeah. that's accessible to the public quite often yeah. so it kind of feels okay to use a picture like that in a story but then say David Tennant and his and his kids yeah there's certain celebrities that if there's like pap images of them with the child in the park you know it's you have to blur the child's face and yeah. there's no I don't think there's really like kind a, hard of, a hard and fast rule, rule no. about it it's just kind of a courtesy thing really because you know that that person doesn't put the child out there like you say there's a lot of celebrities who who do and the social media is and like the kardashians their kids are all on the show and everything and we've i mean we've watched most of them actually be born yeah <laughs> kylie jenner grew up on that show and is now having yeah had her own. i mean courtney kardashian literally birthed all of her children on the show and yes like i had to think about which one she was for a second sorry she's the older sister what right to privacy do the children get to have? Because they, they yeah, had no but, choices, did they? Yeah, and obviously the you know it's it's down to the parents, and they obviously have no issue with it. But yeah, the the likes of of David Tennant, who takes a, a much more um, private view to his children, and and the way he he and a lot of people look at things is that you know yeah he's chosen to be in the public eye, but his his children haven't, mm. and therefore shouldn't be until the come of a certain age when they may or may not decide whether to do that. And, and no one knows what age that is either. It should be 18, but obviously kids are given mobiles yeah. well before then. And it's such a... We, we're in an era where we haven't decided some important rights yet. And if the, if the celebrity parent is the original human and the child is like the cookie, yeah, it is really complicated. And there there isn't anything in law that says these children can be shown but these can't or you have to pick like, these. we yeah. kind of go by how private how, how much a celebrity seems to value their privacy and the privacy of their yeah. children and those are two separate things as well yeah and there was an interesting thing with this recently um, with Ewan McGregor's daughter because mm. she actually posted um, a, a video of herself playing a song that she'd allegedly written about her father Um on Instagram, a public Instagram page that we could all access and see, but when download, embed, yes, etc. But when we used, when we did a story on that, um, we blurred our face because you and McGregor has never put her out there, and she's under eighteen, 
So we blurred her face. How even old is she though, now? She's I think she's about sixteen. Yeah. yeah so um, we, we blurred her image in when we did the story for our website. But anybody, you know, you could have just gone on our Instagram page and seen it for yourself had you wanted to. But we did because you know he's always had that privacy element as well. Mm. So it's interesting how it works because there isn't a hard and fast rule no and you know everyone yes is entitled to some element of privacy but i think with a with a celebrity you know for example a celebrity relationship they you know they put out there these all these images and the the tweet about each other the instagram about each other the, the flood the social media with pictures of them together so when they break up and they suddenly expect nobody to write a story about it you think well you made your relationship newsworthy do you know what i mean it's but it's it's a very it's the whole thing's a gray area i suppose really yeah in in white christmas we see i think the beginnings of this kind of cruel judgmental world yeah definitely and i think the where the, the blocking thing comes in um for John Hamm's character when he kind of he has an argument with his wife and she she blocks him doesn't yeah. she and that sends him a bit a bit crazy and then that's kind of that element of it's kind of put to one side for a while and that that yeah. doesn't come back until um the third part it's very confident storytelling the third part of the episode when you Joe starts to open up about his life and if you finally begin to to learn about him you didn't really understand where he was or why he was there but you didn't know why and it all it all sort of clicks into place at, at this point where the police haven't got a confession out of him so the the bring um Matt Trent in um Matt's crime as a lesser crime it no. was just getting him to get a confession out of this guy was a means to an end, wasn't it? And obviously, you know, we we'll see that he gets his, he gets a punishment anyway. He gets a horrifying sentence, Matrix. Yeah. To be blocked by the world and for them to see him as a... A red. Yeah. Blur. He can't communicate with anyone. He can't see another person. In a way, it's what he did to the cookies to get them to submit to doing the job basically. he'll either get attacked i don't know if he can be physically attacked as a red i don't know if people block. can touch you if you block with a gray obviously not well no the, i don't know i don't maybe people i think it's just seeing and hearing i don't know if there's a... i think with a gray outline you couldn't like you couldn't touch a person who blocked you mm. so don't know and we don't actually find out what joe's punishment is but surely torture to get a confession is a war crime usually Right, it's this yeah, happened in a raw definitely. But it's obviously they might argue it's not physical torture, is it? Mental torture is still under the Geneva Convention. Yeah, it's, it's I mean it's crime. it's just as bad. But so we've always stepped back into an age that of it's more primitive morality, definitely. Even if the tech is futuristic, yeah. And it made me think of White Bear. I've always hated White Bear, not as an episode of his storytelling. It's fantastic. And fantastic acting, but in terms of what people are doing to Lenora Critchley's character, Victoria Skillane, and her name reverberates throughout Black mm-hmm. like Mirror, I find. But yeah, I mean, you don't you don't obviously find out what happens to to actual Joe. No. But to little tiny consciousness Joe, 
he's obviously tiny cookie. He's like a little cookie, isn't he? Um, <laughs> he ends up in what only can be described as never-ending torture. You can look at it in a bleak way like that, or you can look at something like Black Museum and see that what I love about it is all the little criminological artefacts. So lots of bits like Victoria Scalene's mugshot is in yeah. there, Archangel tablet in there. It's that society is um, reassessed what it thinks these things mean and and on on the day that it's a hundred years since some women got the vote that again is a sea change in how people view an entire sector of society are these people worthy of having votes or not Mm -hmm. and thank goodness things do change because you and i would not have a vote today if they didn't um it sometimes takes violent action like emmeline pankhurst and and suffragettes falling under a horse Mm -hmm. or it sometimes it's gradual but yeah, I think I think Black Mirror goes to huge important areas like social change, rights, philosophy, everything. It's almost too much to take in. It is. And it is like too much to with episodes like like this, it's it's too much to absorb on one oh, yeah. sitting. And yeah. and it's really interesting, I think, to watch it back once you know yeah. the ending because yeah. then you, you wanna watch for the clues and like was it there all along and it it's it's geniusly written and the way it's acted yeah. and everything to where the the second time you watch it you know it the, it was all there for you yeah you just didn't see it the first time yeah it's so it's so cleverly done and i think it makes great use of the netflix platform we can go straight back to the beginning if you wanted to we can go on to the next one or pause and come back in three days if you wanted and with channel four you had four od but i think netflix makes a kind of art out of the i'll go back whenever i want and yeah. watch it you i me, me asking you can you watch nosedive can you watch white christmas you can go and find those episodes immediately if you subscribe to netflix yeah. which has become almost like standard for everyone yeah and and yeah, it's the beauty of it is if t- every time you go back, there's something else to get from it. It's it's a fantastic episode. Thank you for listening to the podcast. That was White Christmas. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, um, click on the stars, tell any cookies you might have languishing in your kitchen <laughs> about this podcast. Make sure that your husband who's locked away in his room at night doing really normal things on the computer <laughs> is listening to his podcast and nothing nefarious. And um, please don't block us. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) Thank you and bye.